Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between. This week, we reflect on Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, shenanigans in the U.S. Senate, Trump's taxes, and the lack of indictments for the killing of Breonna Taylor. Since we recorded this episode the morning before the first presidential debates, please feel free to laugh at how much we did not see the debate going that way. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Rebecca. How are you doing? So far, so good on a Tuesday. So far, so good on a Tuesday. I'll take Mm -hmm. that. My hardest day this week is behind me, so that's oh, that's, that's nice to be nice. on the the downhill the downhill slope is what I was going to say. That's not what I mean. And it's nice. We're going downhill. It's nice for the downhill slope to be after you know so early <laughs> in the week. That's a win. It is a win, yeah. So the rest of the things I have to get done are manageable. So mm. feels good. Mm-hmm. Feels great. I have my undergrad professor who got me into grad school, who told me I was smart. He'll be in my class on Wednesday. So that's cool. And you're going to join I'm us. Very interested to meet this individual. Yeah, no, he's real cool. He recommended me for the Archer program. That's where I met Ben. That's where, you know, I kind of got the blinders taken off my eyes in terms of opportunity and what I could think to do and be in terms of career. So I owe him a lot. He's very, very supportive. And I'm one of just many, many people he's done similar things for. So he's a cool guy. Yeah, it sounds like he changed. He played a nice role in changing the trajectory of your life. So big time. Yeah, that's always high praise. Yeah. And also lived up to and like lived up to that notion even after. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that's the other hard part. That's the part like. It's easy. It's easy to to impose your will on an undergrad, but once they start getting the same credentials that you got, it's hard to keep them. It's hard. It's hard to keep inspiring them. You know, like you run into that sometimes. Like, oh, okay, well, you a lazy professor. Like I, right? Like we 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 know them. Like they they exist. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are supportive, encouraging people who might not in their career be inspired and I I I claim that he's both and and incredibly humble too when I first started teaching for MCC the community college here in Waco he reached out and was like hey this is so great if you want any advice let me know and just dropped a bunch of wisdom in my lap just to be supportive Mm -hmm. and it was good it was good advice I've taken it yeah that's dope love it good things this week all right what are we going to get into this week well, I know when we were thinking about this, we had to stop. Like we had to build a fence around it because there's too much. Mm-hmm. There's just, just too, much. too much in the past two weeks. So I think we have to start with what happened at the end of last week, even though it feels like it's been a month now. Yep. But that's the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yep. And the reason it feels like it's so fast is some people have raised the flag already. Not everyone. They're still down around here. The White House has certainly moved on. The administration's moved on. And the Senate has moved on. And they're all 
fighting with each other and arguing with each other. And so it's easy to forget that this human woman who contributed a ton to our society has passed on. And it's, it's a shame, the disrespect that our systems are kind of lodging at her memory in this moment. Well, let's, before we move to the ramifications, let's, let's speak on Justice Ginsburg's life. Like, let, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. What are your thoughts on her? Uh, what are my thoughts on her? Much like, uh, much like a Thurgood Marshall or mm-hmm. heck, like nowadays, like a, like a, like a Brian Stevenson. Like these are people that use the law in smart ways to apply it to people that were not privileged, who did not have the wherewithal to acquire great representation. You know, they wanted, they wanted the law to work for everyone. And so in their early careers, it's like, hey, how do I help? How do I use the law to, to move people further along? Because when you think about the law, the law is for lawless people. Like if you're a righteous person, if you live by a code, your code's probably a higher standard than the law. So if, if we're in court, like we're dealing with lawless people that want to do lawless stuff. And so great lawyering, and I ain't no lawyer, but great lawyering, in my opinion, is just like trying to get the lawless to come off of that lawlessness and maybe write some laws for other people that don't want to be so lawless, you know? Mm, yeah. It's interesting because, so she started in earnest working with the ACLU, her and the director of the ACLU started this women's project together in response to the thousands of laws that had sex discrimination in them. And it's stuff that she, her very first brief before the Supreme Court in Reed versus Reed, she puts two other women as authors on there with her because their ideas, they were activists and they're feminist activists at the time and their ideas inspired her. And so she was always doing things like that, attributing where she got her ideas, what inspired her, what pushed her and giving credit where it was due. So in little ways, I think that's something to appreciate about her and respect about her. And then of course, in the huge ways in terms of she went before the Supreme Court multiple times when she wasn't directly representing the client. She was writing amicus briefs on behalf of the ACLU in support of those cases. So I think you're calling back to Thurgood Marshall as a good comparison because they both followed a similar path of as lawyers suing on behalf of discrimination through the 14th Amendment and asking a Supreme Court to not only try to wrap its head around, like in Third Grade Marshall's case, what racial discrimination is to a bunch of white men. Hmm. And then in RBG's case, this is sex discrimination. And it's not because we're just inherently different. The law is actually wrong and Uh, flawed uh uh and holding us back. And they were like, but you're different. You should be home. Like they just didn't get it. So she was legitimately teaching them while she was doing a, a Supreme Court oral argument, which was wild. And they then they both ended up on the court, you know, in their respective generations and wrote opinions that codified the things that they were fighting for into law. So yeah, they have a very different, but, you know, still similar path that, and that's why they're two of my favorite Supreme Court justices. Yeah. And that comparison, that comparison is not mine. I've, I've heard it made by many, sure. pundits, you know, yeah. Preet Bharara among the chief of them, but yeah, it's, like 
when I heard it the first, I was like, oh yeah, that that's what this is. That makes sense, yeah. And it's only a, a, so few people have argued before the Supreme Court then been on the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and then became the voice that wrote the opinions on the issues that they once argued mm -hmm. on. The, the odds of being able to do that are very, very small and slim and it shows their impact. So uh, in terms of, you know, being a woman, I think a lot of women, Republican, Democrat, whatever your political leanings are, get that she changed the game. In 1970, that's when she went to, or 1972 is the first time I believe she went before the Supreme Court and just law after law after law pushed back on and got the Supreme Court to apply equal protection of the law to sex discrimination. And that's when, you know, oh, we can be on a will now. Oh, <laughs> we can go to a school now. Oh, if we die, our children get government assistance because it's not assumed that only a man would be a breadwinner. So just all of these things that we would take for granted are honestly because of her. No one does anything alone, but without her, they would not have happened. Mm -hmm. And we can't, we can't know the, the influence she wielded amongst her other justices in the court, because when they're deliberate, like there ain't no staff in there with them. There ain't no people. It's them. Right. And it's not on tape and it's just them. And who knows persuasion is a rhetorical action and mm -hmm. you can't be that convicted and make something a part of your life's ethos and not be persuasive about it. It's just not a thing. Mm -hmm. So you don't get to be in that person's presence without hearing really good arguments about her points of view. And so they, wh whatever they decide, like you can't say you weren't exposed. And I think that exposure right. is necessary. You know, just like just just like Justice Thomas needs to expose people to that level of conservatism, every like differing levels of thought, they they need to be exposed to that stuff on the court. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I wish we could listen in, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never gonna it's, happen. It's never going to happen. But I'm always fascinated by happen. it. Yeah, and I suspect also that, you know, and this is just my complete assumption, that Sotomayor really influenced Ruth Bader Ginsburg's response to people that have been criminally accused. And then those 1983 cases in terms of police immunity, that qualified immunity that the court kind of created, because she used to side more with upholding that. And then later on in her career, she was always on the dissenting side with Sotomayor on those briefs. And we don't know. I mean, it could be the facts of the case that shifted her opinion. But in my mind, I think Sotomayor kind of changed her view on some of those things because of that exposure. And I agree with you that Ginsburg did that for many things on the court around voting, around discrimination, all sorts of areas. She's a cool lady. Definitely. Definitely. And I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on the political mayhem that then ensued, but there is a sadness I feel for her that the weight, she did so much and worked so hard for so long. And the fact that as she's dying, she's talking to her granddaughter about her dying wish, and that is for the next president to assign her replacement. And so just the fact that she was thinking of those ramifications while she's dying makes me sad because 
that shouldn't be her job. And it isn't her job. She doesn't get to decide, but it just shows you she understood the political ramifications. So this is the interesting part when we're talking about the highest court in the land and how laws are codified and and, and, and understood in, in, in our society. Like we've moved past, we've moved past deliberation, right? And so the hard thing to do is to get something through Congress, you know, and, and then get it signed by a president. That's the hard thing. It's really hard. And it's hard because through the gerrymandering process, the people that put those voter that put those representatives in place, they got a certain worldview, and that worldview is we want what we want, and we don't want to compromise. So when you got a bunch of legislators that, that that have no incentive to compromise, the easy thing to do is to have the court become legislatures, and we can put something before the court and throw our hands up and say, hey, that's what they did, and now we're beholden to it. That's what they upheld. We're beholden to right. it. Right. And, and we don't have to take agency over our job as 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 lawmakers. Mm-hmm. That that's the issue, and that's why it's so. That's why the the bar is like, oh no, the world is over because so and so's on. It's like, nah, it shouldn't even be. If there was legislation that could happen in Congress, court ain't got nothing to do with that. Right. It's not that. That's really not their function. But it's become their function because they got lifetime appointments and they don't have to be swayed by an election. Yeah, one of their most important functions is stopping terrible legislation from the state level. And those are people that we vote for in our state. And then they try to change, fundamentally change things for everyone, not just within their state, by pushing back and trying to pass laws. Like, for example... Texas and Ohio and Alabama have all passed laws that intentionally try to overturn Roe v. Wade. And it's a strategy. And they're doing it in other areas too. That's just the the most obvious example because they want it to go to the Supreme Court and they want the Supreme Court to look at it and go, okay, this time we're going to do something different in terms of, well, we're just going to uphold what we've done in the past. And so you're absolutely right that in terms of having the greatest impact at the legislative levels, states in particular are intentionally passing laws to try to change things. And that's, it's, I mean, it is what it is, whether it's good or bad. I mean, I think that it's, it's not ideal, but um, that's exactly what the civil rights movement started to do. We saw that in, in, in lots of, well, basically there was a shift of, look, if the Supreme Court's not going to protect you, if Congress isn't going to protect you, start trying to expand civil rights within your state. And so that was kind of the early beginnings of that, of try to get your state constitution to change and say you have rights. Pass laws at the state level that say you're protected by race and sex and things like that. So, I mean, it makes sense to try at the state level, but this is a little bit of a different strategy. Yeah, so... I mean, the political, if we're, if we're going to go there, and I think we should, it's just, there was a moment, right? Like, there was a moment, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, she was diagnosed with cancer at, seven years ago, right? Like, they, they approached her in 2014, and they said, hey, listen. 
it's probably a good idea to, to make moves because we could now is that her it's a lifetime appointment she could do what she want to do and she should do what she 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 should have done what what she felt like she wanted to do but those decisions you know hindsight's 2020 but nowhere in her mind could she envision a world in which a republican was getting elected before she died like there there's mm-hmm. no way just like there was no way like like the obama administration punted on this Merrick Garland issue. They punted on mm-hmm. it. Like they could have fought they to did. the nail to do it. They could have bully pulpited, but the the move was, well, Hillary's going to win anyway. So it doesn't matter. Why even right. fight this one? Right. And and, and I, I think in his mind, he was like, well, I'll just make this sacrifice. I won't have this, like I'm letting a legacy go by not having another Supreme Court nominee that I've placed there. I'll give it to Hillary. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And so- of course, it's easy for us to say that was a mistake, and it was, but there's no way he saw this coming. Yeah, and so I don't, and we can we can shift toward Barrett's nomination here in a second, but sure, I don't understand. I don't understand where either either side is at. In sixteen, mm-hmm. the Republicans was like, "It's too close to an election. Let the people decide." And mm-hmm. every Democrat was like, that ain't your function. You need mm-hmm. to hold a hearing and we need to vote up or down. Who cares if, if, if we vote it down, so be it. But we should at least hold the hearing. Right. Right. And now, you know, fast forward, Republicans is like, you know, the people already decided. They, we, we, we put it in their hands. They decided this is exactly what they were signing up for and it was in 2016 we know that this part is the whole part three justices in four years that mm-hmm. is hit that, that it's the reason why people held their nose in the first place it's for this so to give that up why would they and the same democrats that are like you need to hold a hearing are like heck no we can't hold a hearing it's too close to an election right and so mm-hmm. i'm like you know uh, we should be holding hearings and people should vote up or down. Or if it's this close to elect- an election, then we we should let the people decide. I, but mm-hmm. the rules as they are written, I mean, Mitch McConnell's a scoundrel, but he playing by the rules he got. Well, now he is. <laughs> he, he wasn't in 2016, obviously. What do you mean? In 2016, when he refused to have hearings, he wasn't playing by his own rules. Now he's playing by the rules of the Senate and saying we have a constitutional duty to do this. So you're absolutely right that both sides have flipped for what's convenient for them. And the Democrats are like, look, you set this precedent. You decided that in election years, this shouldn't happen. And not only is it an election year, we are days away from an election. We're way closer than we were in February when Scalia passed away. And so if that was your concern then, that should be the concern now. Now, the, the difference, which in fairness to Republicans, is they didn't lose the majority in the Senate, but they had epic losses in the House. So they, the argument of like, oh, there's a mandate, by their own logic in 2016, there isn't. The people responded by voting a bunch of Republican congressional members out of office. So... I mean, everyone's a hypocrite. Everyone wants to win. 
what's the smartest thing for Democrats to do to block it? What's the smartest thing for Republicans to do to shove it through no matter what? And that's exactly what everyone's doing. So it's not really about like the the principle of the matter, the ethics of the matter. It's if you have the opportunity to put a justice on the court, you do it. And that's why they were, the Democrats were so pissed off in 2016. And unfortunately, it didn't hurt the Republicans like we thought it was going to. So why should the Democrats be like, oh, that's fine. Have another one. Have a supermajority for the next 40 years. Who cares? They should fight dirty now too. If, the, if those are the rules, if, if everyone's fighting dirty, then we should all be on the, we should all do it. Yeah, I mean, you're you're equating Senate norms to Mitch McConnell's philosophy, and Mitch McConnell's philosophy is: if I have the power to do it, I'm gonna do it. I had the power to stop this with Obama. Now, I think the untold story of that whole thing, and and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates writes about this, is that. I just don't think they would have done that to another president. I think the fact that Obama was a black dude, they just they just disrespected him. Like they were just like screw him. Mm-hmm. And we can just do this and this is weird, but we're just going to do it to him specifically. And mm-hmm. and and he's going to take it. You know what I mean? And and and, and he's not you know like I just felt like there was that you know, I, I, cause I've heard Mitch McConnell speak about this. And he's like, the greatest day of my life was when I could go into the Oval Office and tell the president, you're not going to get that nomination on the floor. I'm like, who does that? Like, who that's speaks crazy. to the president that way? Who, right. who, who are you, Mitch? Right. And so. Yeah, who sits <laughs> in the Oval Office and has just no respect for the no office respect. whatsoever as, as the Senate Majority Leader. I mean, that's, that's wild. pretty wild. It's wild. Yeah. So this is where we are. And I definitely think that it is, it's a battle and a war thing. They might think that they won this battle, but they absolutely lost the war because if, if, if what they want actually comes about, if, if, if they get a court to undo the Affordable Care Act, if they get a court to undo Roe v. Wade, there's plenty of people in this country who rock with Republicans who are going to be pissed off at that forever and all time. And we'll never, ever rock with them again. And, and, and this, It's against pu- general public opinion. Majority yes. both want both in place. Yes. Am, am I, would I counsel somebody that I loved or, or a, to, to, to have an abortion? No, I would not. Do I want there to be safe abortions in this country since they are going to occur until, until the world ends? Yes, I do. They should be safe. They should be held like my grandmother used to tell stories about hangers and, mm. y- y- you know, terrible things that people would do to themselves out of desperation. That's ridiculous. Yeah, there's a difference between our personal decisions based on faith, morality, however you see it, and dictating the government dictating what you can can and can't do. Those are different things. And we've conflated all of them together. And what I often say, there's this chart that shows over time when Democrats are in power in Congress and at the presidential level, abortions go down by double digits. Mm. So if the goal is to truly reduce abortions, then Democratic policies result in that more than Republican policies because they're like, we should have comprehensive sex education. 
We should have access to prevention. We should, you know, all of the things that stop you from needing an abortion, reduce teen pregnancy, you know, education and access to early health care are things that Democrats want to fund. And the defunding of Planned Parenthood, because it's politically tied to abortion, actually leads to more abortions. And so if you're pro-life and completely against policies that allow for abortion, it might make sense to always vote Republican no matter what. But I contend if you truly, if that's really the issue, that you really want fewer abortions to happen in this country, your votes are not doing that. I think it's very, I think it's very important right now, especially for people to just have their eyes open and say, hey, this is what this political philosophy for the world looks like. This is what this is what they want to do. This is what they're about. And if that stuff occurs, then I don't think it's going to be a whole heap of a stretch to bring about the changes that you're talking about. You know, this 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 idea of of playing dirty. It, I think I think Democrats and Republicans both enjoy being able to blame the other party for why they couldn't bring about their vision of the world. Mm -hmm. And so very rarely will you have the House, the Senate, and the executive of all the same party. And normally it only occurs for like in two-year chunks. And in those two-year chunks, you get a real clear vision of what that party is about and what their worldview for the United States is. Typically Mm -hmm. with Republicans, they're going to cut taxes. Typically with Democrats, there's going to be some wide ranging social program. And so that's what's going to happen. And too often people run saying they're going to do all types of stuff. And then when they get in there to govern, I would have done all that stuff, but they stopped me. And what the Republicans are finding out is, well, we can't blame anybody. We have all the branches. We have all the levers. So -hmm. now it's just my policy. Oh, my policy sucks. You're mad at my policy. You don't, I I reject that policy. Oh, dang it, man. Our political philosophy will not change, will not bend. And people are like opening their eyes and saying, this ain't working for me in America. Because if it did, if it was Ronald Reagan and it was the eighties, policy works, no problem. But the country's way different now. Right. And the economy is way different now. And trying to shove a law and order philosophy down our throats when there's not a rise in crime. No, historic lows for crime. Right. That's why you have to show again and again and again and again violence in cities to try to scare you into caring about it because it's not something that's already on the radar of most voters. So you have to try to place it there. And I mean, that's campaign strategy, and I understand that, but I take your points. Yeah, and I think more Americans, when they hear those tropes, they got a schema for that now. They Before, it was, it was less likely that you knew people that were in those groups, that you mm-hmm. knew and respected people that were in those groups. But now, every walk of life, you got somebody in your life that's part of one of those groups, and you could just talk to them and know that that's a bunch of nonsense. You know, it'd be like, oh yeah, that's that's not that's not a thing. That's not real. That's not. It's not a thing. 
You think we're less siloed than we used to be? I think, uh, well, siloed is an interesting word. I think we, I think we're exposed to more people than we were in the past. And I think that there's more people in more walks of life that are diverse. But mm, I think mm-hmm. you can easily cocoon yourself and only be talking to people that look sound and feel like you. And I think that that's the rise that we see in these different platforms is, is being able to, to have a more homogenous ecosystem than you do in the world itself. In public, I got to play nice, but in private, I can be with my people type deal. Mm. I might have mm-hmm. to listen to Anthony in class, but I can be with my people, you know, you, or, or whatever, right? Oof, like, it, yeah. it's, it's one of those yeah. things. So there's, there's a few th- directions that takes me in, but before we get too far down that path, what are your thoughts on Amy Coney Barrett? Uh, what are my the, Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, in case that wasn't clear. I mean, I know you know. Right. But for the I, listeners out there. I don't know. I mean, seems like she's pretty conservative. You know, it's I, she clerked for Antonin Scalia, and 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 people mm-hmm. are saying that uh, she's the heir apparent. Now, if she writes and and speaks like he did, that's interesting. That that's that's gonna be to me. To me, throwing out them words, that's high praise, right? Like that. I'm like, oh, you're really like Scalia, like. Oh yeah, for conservative Scalia, that you're the heir apparent, really? Okay, let's see. I mean, she doesn't have any anywhere close to the experience Scalia had when he was nominated, though. But it's also, you know, you you weigh experience. She's only been a judge for I think six years. That's it. That's her entire judicial experience to then go on to be a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, she's 48 and she can be there a long oh, time. Wow. So they're choosing longevity over that experience. And I mean, yeah, it's a strategy. What do you know about this people of praise stuff? Have um, you looked into it at all? I I read an op-ed from Peggy Noonan, basically about how somebody's faith shouldn't be used as a pejorative. I'm aware of what mm-hmm. Diane Feinstein said when she was getting confirmed as a in the seventh circuit, I believe, you know, talking about, you know, the dogma is strong within you and this and that. I, Oh gosh. I don't, yeah. Yeah. You know, like Diane Feinstein, you can't be saying that stuff out loud about people, right? Like, Oh, the dogma lives strong with it. Like what? Uh, so, but, but I'm not, I'm not up on it. Like, like that. What, what, what is, what's it about? So, yeah, I, I worry about like anti-Catholic rhetoric. I think that's, well, it's anti-Catholic. It's also unwise. The Democrats don't need to be doing that. Um, People of Praise is apparently not under the Catholic Church, but it is, I guess, supported. The Most of the group members are Catholic. And some people who are formerly in it describe it as a cult. And it's an, an, apparently a very conservative social and religious group. And that's about the extent I know. There's a branch of it called Something Light, and that has been even more closely tied to being a cult, but she's not a part of that. She's a part of people of praise. So I think they're kind of trying to connect all of it to her. And I haven't done a deep dive into it yet, but I was just curious if you had, just because, you know, I know we love talking about cults, so. Yeah, I, I wish Jesus was enough for folks. 
<laughs> I wish, like, I wish, I, I wish, like, there, there doesn't need to be, like, a conference where people get together and talk about how persecuted they are. Like, in, in America, no less. Like, Jesus should be enough. There's enough there to organize around. There's, there, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't need extra books. We don't need extra levels of, like, the problems that people have with religion in this country are about followers of Jesus, not Jesus. <laughs> like the the issue, like nobody. I've never I've never met the person like I got a real beef with Jesus. Nope, never met that person. Never met that person. <laughs> I've met plenty of people that have beef with people who profess Jesus. I've had, I've met plenty of people mm-hmm. that have beef with people who are hypocritical in their views around the gospel, right? Like, how can you hold these beliefs and feel this way about X, Y, Z person? But never, ever have I met someone who's like, yeah, I ain't got no love for him and what he was about. Never met that person. Hmm. Yeah, I, I assume that if there's anything there, it'll come out in the hearings, but it'll be interesting. Um, yeah, but so far, Trump's talked about it as, we we decided on whether we want our leaders to be Catholic with JFK. Well, isn't a majority of the court Roman Catholic? Yeah. I thought they were. Yeah, so this is anything new. new. Like, I want to yeah. say like seven out of nine of them are or something like that. Yeah, so the issue isn't that she's Catholic. It's that she may or may not be part of this sort of extreme religious group. And if it is extremely religious, you know, like how dedicated is she to all of their tenants because she will be making case law that impacts all of our lives so does she freak me out yeah is she probably gonna be even more conservative than Scalia yeah but am I surprised that they picked her no not at all no I mean I'll just say we've been talking around it or about it I, I feel like it's a be careful what you wish for a moment. I don't know if it's going to be like in my lifetime, but I'm, I'm I'm fairly certain that in my children's lifetime, people will look back at 2020 and be like, yeah, that's the year that it, that, because, you know, remember what Nixon did, there wasn't another Republican controlled Congress for like 40 years, mm-hmm. you know? Like when the scandal comes and, and 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 sits down in your party, oh, there's gonna be repercussions. You don't get to go through a Nixon or a Clinton and not have it have repercussions for your party. And so, all them people that's been carrying all that Trump water for all this time, it's going to resonate. And when you put sweeping demographic changes into the country, plus that immoral scandalous nature of what they've been doing oh yeah i just don't think that politically you can survive that you can't spin that away it's just it is what it is and and people are on the ground feeling the real life ramifications of that daily it's not some abstract Mm -hmm. thing right what i think is interesting is that trump wants to fill it because he can use it to campaign off of if he doesn't well, he has to nominate, but then the best thing that could happen to him is that it gets delayed and that he can run off of this because this is the only boost we've seen in his polls for a long minute. And he is definitely campaigning on it. He has a chant, fill that seat that literally came a day after. So I was like, oh, cool. That's respectful. Um, 
but he's using it and it's it's working with it's for a small group of people and that's what he needs and so once it's pushed through what's the point of voting you don't have to hold your nose and vote anymore you have a super majority on the court for a generation for now and i th- and i think that's what they're at cross purposes on him and Mitch McConnell you know sure trump needs it to motivate his base McConnell knows he's not going to win or there's a high probability mm, that he won't. Mm-hmm. High, probability. high probability that yeah. he won't win. I'm not going to say he's not going to win, but there's a high probability that he won't. And Mitch McConnell is a high probability right. dude. Now, he also knows that there's a high probability that it blows up the Senate. But he's saying it's worth it. That's what he's saying. I did what I I did what I did came here to do, mm-hmm. and I'm going to ride off into the sunset. And if it costs me and turns me from majority leader into minority leader, so be it. But we did what we had to do. And if the shoe was on the other foot, I'm sure he's rationalizing. They would have done the same thing. Now, I say when Democrats were faced with those types of choices, I, th- I feel like it happened twice. The first time it happened was with Barney, not not Barney, uh, Al Franken. And mm-hmm. the Democrats moved on him and mm-hmm. said, screw this. This isn't right. You got to go. And he left. He did. That's crazy. He was like, that's crazy. presidential hopeful. Yeah, that's crazy to me. I'm like, whoa, you left. So that was the first thing. From a moral standpoint, that the second thing is Biden being the nominee to me. When faced with, which way are we really going to go, y'all? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Okay, we're going to do this. Are we going to go to the far-reaching side of our party, or are we going to try to get somebody who can get up in it? Eh, you know, and Bernie Sanders, to his credit, is like, yeah, it's fine. I don't like it, but it's fine. And I'm going to rock with it. And we're going to do what we have to do. Yeah, he had every right to be bitter about it. And he's just, you know, he's not going to do, he saw the negative outcome of that. It wasn't his fault by any means that Trump won in 2016. But his, many of his supporters did not want to then go vote for Hillary. And so now, because of the lack of Clinton vote, he's like, all right, we can't do the same thing to Biden. Yeah, they did me dirty twice, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to. I'm going to get behind this because the alternative is far worse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we all we all know what we need to do. Whether you're holding your nose to vote for Biden or you're thrilled about voting for him, it's just, it's hard for me to hear justifications of voting for Trump at this point. Uh, well, those that are self-interested mm-hmm. and look at vote and say, hey, is this good? for my for my bottom line if that's how you vote then you know because you got to think like who's better equipped to like if you run a business you want to be left alone who's going to leave me alone donald trump they're gonna they're gonna strip regulation they're gonna let me run free they're gonna let me do what i need to do to profit to 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 make profit and clear these red tape regulations so smooth sailing with this economy once we bounce back from covid Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so what's Joe Biden going to do? Well, th- they got some more regulations to put back on the books and they want to make it harder for me to run my business and make it harder for me to make a profit. Now, should it be hard for you to run a business and make a profit? Hell yeah, it should be. You should be a better <laughs> business person. I, you shouldn't have every loophole in the book to run your business. If you need all that, you shouldn't be in business. You didn't think of a good enough idea because if your idea is how can I make a sweatshop out of my workers... That's not a great business. You should be at the job your dang self. Maybe your business plan should have 
included livable wages. Yeah, your business blows. And and if your business isn't subsidized, like all these businesses hate subsidizing people, but love business subsidy. Right. And I'm like, oh. Oh, you know what you're getting into? <laughs> you're bumping up against the Trump taxes. Oh, we go there. But it's like, We yeah, gotta go there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I feel like that's how you could get to a Trump vote. It's like, man, I'm not, I don't care about none of this morality stuff. This is about, and in a capitalistic bottom line business society, hey, there's plenty of people that feel that way. Yeah. So I think we have to chat a little bit about Trump taxes. And I also really want to hear your predictions for the debate tonight. First presidential debate is happening tonight. Tonight. We're recording this on Tuesday. So by the time this comes out, it will not be relevant, but you'll know if we were right or not. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So what do you, what do you think is going to happen in that debate? I'm nervous. What do I think is going to happen? I mean, these last three or four weeks have just really served the media. They're going to put out everything they have about the president. Everything. It's all coming out. It, it, it has come out. Mm-hmm. It will continue to come out to serve as some type of fodder for Joe Biden to parry these attacks. Right. And you said that weeks ago. You said it's every gonna week happen. there's going to be something new. And by clockwork, is, we got the tax releases down. or the tax returns were released. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the media feels complicit. Like deep down, they know they played a role in 2016. And the role was... Mm-hmm. This is great ratings. This is awesome. Everybody's watching this. He's not going to win, but this is great ratings. We have to cover this because this is money. We're making money. This is mm-hmm. money. You know, we talked about Fox mm-hmm. News last week. Man, MSNBC and CNN, they love Donald Trump as TV. Absolutely. And they're going to love, if he loses, they're going to love the prosecution side of this. They're not going to cover Biden. They're going to cover what's going on with with the aftermath of the Trump foundation, right? Like, that, but that's just- Biden's going to be boring. Yeah, we don't that's got time to think about that. We're still on this story, mm-hmm. you know? And so this, this is like their mea culpa to the public. Oh, dang it. We're the reason why you think this guy was a good businessman. We're the reason why you think this guy was rich. We're the reason why you think this guy's important. We're sorry. We, we, we were trying to make money, not run the country. And, and, mm-hmm. and his presidency is a snapshot of what happens when media companies and radio companies run the country. Like, that's not, that's not how, you know. This has been This Is For The CV. Thanks for listening, Mom. This Is For The CV is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.